out your Bible and open to the book of Nahum. Hopefully somebody did this for you. Yes, it's in page 1451 of the Blue Bible, Pew Bible. On March 26th, the year 2000, can't believe that's 16 years ago, more, uh, Seattle's Kingdome, if you remember that indoor stadium, the Kingdome, home of the Seattle Mariners and Seahawks and sometimes Supersonics, uh, was destroyed. It was, it came down. The Maryland-based company Controlled Demolition Incorporated, CDI, was hired to do the job of imploding that 25,000-ton structure. Remarkable about the event was the extreme measures that they took in safety, making sure that no one was hurt during that explosion. CDI had experience in over 7,000 other demolitions, and they understood how to protect people during something like this. They checked and rechecked the structure and where the charges were placed, The authorities evacuated blocks and blocks from the kingdom. Safety measures were in place to allow the countdown to stop at any time if anybody thought there was any danger whatsoever of somebody getting hurt. All the workers were individually given a radio, counting down the demolition, and, and at the end, a large public address system throughout the city was put up to do the final countdown so that everybody knew what was happening for safety's sake. In short, CDI took every reasonable measure and more to warn people of the impending danger. I hope our time in the Minor Prophets has given you a sense that that's what Yahweh is doing through the prophets. He takes every reasonable measure and more to help make sure that God's people are warned of what's coming. See, our God is gracious and compassionate. He is slow to anger and abounding in love. God does does relent in sending calamity. But there's a time when God's patience ends. And that is what the book of Nahum is about. Look with me at verse 1 in chapter 1, an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and maintains his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind, in the storm. The clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence and the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his first fierce anger? 
His wrath is poured out like fire, and rocks are shattered before him. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into darkness. Whatever they plot against the Lord, he will bring to an end. And he will bring to an end trouble will not come a second time. They will entangle, be entangled among the thorns and drunk from their wine. They will be consumed like dry stubble. From you, O Nineveh, no one has come forth who plots evil against the Lord and counsels wickedness. This is what the Lord says. Although they have allies and are numerous, and they will be cut off, they will be cut off and pass away. Although I have afflicted you, O Judah, I will afflict you no more. Now I will break their yoke from your neck and tear your shackles away. The Lord has given a command concerning you, Nineveh. You will have no descendants to bear your name. I will destroy the carved images and cast idols that are in the temple of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are vile. We love sequels. Hollywood has made a fortune on sequels. I remember coming out of one of the greatest sequels of all time, I think, The Empire Strikes Back, when I was a teenager. And I couldn't wait for the next one to come out. I thought that was the greatest sequel in the world. But I also remember coming out of one of the worst sequels in the world, in my opinion, Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull. It ruined the whole series for me, practically. It was awful. It was terrible. This is a terrible sequel. This is a sad sequel. What we have before us is the sequel to the book of Jonah. As you know, Jonah prophesied about a hundred years previous to Nahum. He was given the, the, uh, the, the call to go to Nineveh and preach repentance. Preach that judgment was coming on Nineveh. And he didn't want to go because he hated the Assyrians. And we'll get into that in a little while, why they were so hated. He preached 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. In other words, he was saying, listen, Nineveh, God's patience is near the end for you. And quite stunningly, as we saw earlier in this series, they they repented en masse. Nineveh repented. The Assyrians repented. And God relented from sending calamity. One of the greatest displays of God's compassion and great and graciousness. They turned from their sins. But then, over the decades, they returned to their cruelty. They returned to their sins. Until over a hundred years later, as we see in verse 11, it says, From you, O Nineveh, has one come forth who plots evil against the Lord and counsels the wicked. They'd returned to their idolatry. They had returned to their sin. And so, in verse 14, is the sad judgment of Nineveh. The Lord has given a command concerning you, Nineveh. You, have, you will have no descendants to bear your name. I will destroy the carved images and the cast idols that are in the temple of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are vile. 
what is being declared here is the doom of Nineveh. Doom declared. God's patience has run out. One of the reasons Nahum prophecy is preserved in the canon for us is to teach us that there is an end to the patience of God. There's an end to the patience of God. J.I. Packer wrote, The subject of divine wrath has become taboo in modern society, and by and large Christians have accepted it as taboo and conditioned themselves to never raise the matter. I think as we look through Scripture, as we read Scripture, we have to resist that conditioning to not think of God's wrath. Look at verse 3 with me. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord, But the Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. Yes, the Lord is slow in anger. Yes, he is patient. But don't misunderstand his patience for giving you permission. There will be punishment. There will come a time when his patience ends. You see this again in verse 7 and 8. The Lord is good, refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. That is so true. But... With an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into darkness. They had returned to their ways. They had, they had taken this, this great patience of God as permission to sin. And thus their doom is declared by Nahum. R.C. Sproul wrote, God's grace is not infinite. God is infinite. God is gracious. We experience the grace of an infinite God, but grace is not infinite. God sets limits to his patience, he writes. He warns us over and over again that someday the axe will fall and his judgments will be poured out. That's what Nahum is saying to Nineveh. And that's what we have to understand. There is an end to God's patience. The patience of God is kind of a a double-edged sword, if you will. If you read in, in 2 Peter, in the third chapter, we all know this verse pretty well. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Peter's explaining the patience of God. He's not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you. And then he answers the question, why? Why is he patient with us, Peter? Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone come to repentance. What? In other words, he's saying part of God's patience is he, he's showing his heart here. He loves his creation. He wants people to be saved. That's one part of God's patience. His caring And we love to concentrate on that part of God's patience, don't we? That's what we love sermons about. Just tell me about that type of patience, Blake. Unfortunately, the word of God, there's another side of God's patience, and that's what we see in Nahum. There's a saying, giving someone just enough rope to hang themselves. You've probably heard that or used that. Well, Nahum shows the other purpose of God's patience. If you continue in your ways, if you think like like the Judeans did last week with Zephaniah, that don't worry about God, he's not going to do neither good nor evil, it's okay. 
He's not going to come with any kind of judgment or punishment. If you think like that, you misinterpret God's patience for prerogative and permission. And what Nahum is saying is that's a grave error. Because that's the bent of our heart. Nothing happens long enough. Oh, we're safe. That's, that's how we think. And God, through Nahum, is saying no. Be careful with that type of thinking. There will be doom. There will be judgment. God's patience does run out. In May of 2009, in, on the Hanzhou Bridge in Gongzhou, China, a disturbed man, deep in financial debt, climbed to the edge of the bridge and was threatening suicide. Because of him, the police closed off the bridge and disrupted traffic for five hours. Suddenly, a 66-year-old man walked through the crowd, through the police barriers, and walked right up to the man on the edge of the bridge and extended his hand and shook his hand and then pushed him off. Now, luckily, they had constructed a net underneath and the man wasn't hurt. Now, hear me clearly. Jesus doesn't push people off the bridge. Isaiah 43 makes that incredibly clear. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. He is patient with you. He is gracious. He is merciful. Love the King James Version. He is long-suffering. But we have to be careful and take what J.I. Packer says to heart. We have to resist the temptation to be conditioned to never raise the matter of God's patience running out. There is an end. He will not be patient with sin forever. And that, that's what we see in the book of Revelation, isn't it? If you're in a discovery group, it's going to encourage you to read Revelation 19, where we see Jesus coming in judgment. His patience has run out. And it is, and I, and I encourage you to take time to read through that. It's a terrifying image. It's terrifying. If you're a believer sitting here, the, the, the knowledge that the bridge on which people are standing and don't know Christ will someday collapse, his patience will end, that knowledge should spur you on, should open your mouth to people. That knowledge that God's patience will end, that the bridge will collapse, should open your mouth to tell people about the only hope they have. If you're sitting here today and maybe you don't know Christ, you have to know one thing. And this is an axiomatic truth. It's just truth. The bridge that you're standing on will collapse. God's patience will run out. And it'll be an awful day. There's one way off that bridge. 
There is a person who did push through the crowds and who went up and is coming up to you right now and extending his hand to you. And that man is Jesus Christ. He came and he lived the sinless life that you cannot live, however much you try. He earned heaven. He earned life. The way in which I and you cannot. And he went to the cross and he said, God, take your wrath out on me and give Blake or fill in your own name. Give me the life that you earned. Repent of your sins and walk off that dangerous bridge. Trust in Christ. It's the only way off that collapsing bridge because when it collapses, it will be terrible. And that's described for us in chapter 2 where he talks about the doom that will be described here. An attacker advances against you, Nineveh. Guard you the fortress. Watch the road. Brace yourselves. Marshal all your strength. The Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel. Though destroyers have laid them to waste and have ruined their vines. And here's the image. The shield of his soldiers. God's soldiers are red and the warriors are clad in scarlet. The metal on their chariots flashes and on that day, on the day they are made ready. The spears of pine are brandished. The chariots storm through the streets, rushing back and forth through the squares. They look like flaming torches. They dart about like lightning. He summons his picked troops, yet they stumble on their way. They dash to the city wall and protective shields is put in place. The river gates are thrown open and the palace collapses. Here's Nineveh's downfall right here. It is decreed that the city be exiled and carried away. Its slave girls moan like doves and beat upon their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool and its water is draining away. Stop, stop, they cry. But no one turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. The supply is endless, the wealth of all its treasures. She is pillaged and plundered and stripped. Hearts melt, knees give way, bodies tremble. Every face grows pale. Where now is the lion's den, Nineveh? The place where they fed their young, where the lion and lioness went, and the cubs with nothing to fear. The lion has killed enough for his cubs and strangled the prey for his mate, filling his lairs with the kill and the dens with the prey. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will burn up your chariots in smoke and the sword will devour your young lions. I will leave you no prey on the earth. The voice of your messengers will no longer be heard. But chapter 2 is, is a description of Nineveh, of Assyria's demise. God's patience with them is at an end. And there's almost unparalleled, their almost unparalleled cruelty is about to be judged. Here God is pictured as leading an army into battle. That's what the, the bulk of chapter 2 is about. Sieging on the capital, conquering the city, plundering the city. 
So much so in leveling the city to such a degree that it will be forgotten, as verse 7 says. And this, this prophecy came true probably within 25 years of when Nahum prophesied. Within a couple decades, Assyria went from the greatest superpower to being forgotten. So much so that Nineveh's capital was forgotten in history until about 150 years ago when it was discovered. Totally wiped out. But Assyria's doom could not have sounded more impossible to God's people at the time Nahum was prophesying. At the time Nahum was prophesying, probably around 640, 650 B.C., Assyria was at the zenith of its power. And by the way, the zenith of its cruelty to the nations around them. After the repentance under Jonah, Assyria had been returning to her cruel and bloodthirsty ways under kings such as, and maybe you've heard some of these, Shalmaneser and Sargon and Sennacherib and Esarhaddon. But then under Ashurbanipal, he consolidated the power. And at the time Nahum was prophesying, Assyria was the most powerful civilization that had ever ruled up to that point. He galvanized their power and he also galvanized their cruelty. And yet, that is precisely when God sends Nahum to prophesy the utter destruction of Nineveh. Don't you find that amazing? That a divine warrior is coming. That a divine warrior is on their side who will defeat their oppressor, who will plunder their storehouses. A powerful divine warrior who will shake off the yoke of slavery. See, remember those images from chapter 1. A powerful divine warrior who will fight and defeat the enemy and protect his people. Look at what it says in 2.13. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I am against you, Assyria. How encouraging that would be for God's demoralized people. I know, look at Assyria, looks, looks impossible, but I am going to defeat them. You are going to be freed. Can't you hear the echo of what Paul wrote in Romans 8? Did you hear it when I read it? I am against you. You know what Paul said? He, he probably was remembering that and he wrote this. If God is for us, who can be against us? It's one of the most comforting verses in the New Testament. One of them. As a matter of fact, Romans 8 is is called the high peak of Everest, if you will, in the New Testament. If God is for you, who can be against you? How encouraging to be told that we have an invincible divine warrior on our side. I think that's the, that's the easiest way to see, see Christ in, in the book of Nahum. He's the divine warrior, isn't he? 
Jesus Christ. Jack Reacher, I don't know if you saw that movie, but the tagline for that movie is, law has its limits, he does not. Well, I don't want to make too much of Jack Reacher, but I do want to make a lot of our God. You know, civilizations have their limits. God has no limits. He is almighty. I hope that you're connecting what we sang today with the sermon. Almighty God. God throughout the ages. Omnipotent God. That hymn, that wonderful hymn we just sang. Do you believe that? Or did you just sing that? I mean, let me, let me pause. When you sang that hymn, were you overcome in some way with, with his power and comforted by that? I see some heads shaking. and Maybe that's true. But I would be willing to bet that most people just sang the words. Almighty, omnipotent God. And not, not realizing that's what God's people need to hear. You're a divine warrior. You have the almighty God on your side. If he is for you, really, who could be against you? And that's what he wants to tell his people in Nahum's time, who were so oppressed, who were so downtrodden, who were so low. I am for you. I am against those who oppress you. He's giving them hope. And that's the hope that Christ brings in our own life. Perhaps the greatest way we see Christ in the book of Nahum is as our divine warrior. He doesn't have any limits. We see this divine warrior from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, don't we? He goes out into the desert and defeats Satan's temptations. We see that throughout the Gospels, as you read the Gospels, he's constantly defeating the satanic realm, the spiritual realm, the powers and authorities of darkness, isn't he? The demons, casting demons out. He's doing spiritual battle. And of course, we see that preeminently on the battle of the cross where he defeated our enemies. Do you realize that sin is your enemy? Do you realize that death is your enemy? Do you realize that sin, that Satan is your enemy? Of course, that's the easy one. He defeated all of those at the cross. I mean, that's what Colossians is trying to, to tell us. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them. He put it on display through weakness, but he defeated them triumphing over them by the cross, it says in verse 14 of chapter 2. Jesus is our divine warrior, and he asks, if I am for you, who can be against you? How comforting that is. I like the people who heard Nahum's prophecy about the divine warrior. They should be thinking as we are thinking, as Paul wrote Convinced, if he is for you, that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present 
nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth or anything else in all creation would be able to separate us from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus. That's the comfort that God wants us to know through Nahum. If the divine warrior Jesus Christ is for you, who can be against you? Lastly, Nahum shows that Assyria's doom was deserved. Look with me at chapter 3. Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. Think of that imagery. The crack of whips and the clatter of wheels, galloping horses and jolting chariots, charging cavalry, flashing swords and glittering spears, many casualties, piles of dead. This is the might of the Assyrian army. Bodies without number, people stumbling over the courses, all because of the wanton lust of a harlot alluring the mistress of sorceries who enslave nations by her prostitution and peoples by her witchcraft. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will lift up your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I will pelt you with filth and I will treat you with contempt and make a spectacle of you. All who see you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is in ruins. Who will mourn for her? Where can I find anyone to comfort you? Are you better than Thebes, situated on the Nile with waters around her? The river was her defense and waters her wall. Cush in the Egypt were her boundary strength. Put, Put in Libya were among her allies. Yet she was taken captive and went into exile. Her infants were dashed to pieces at the head of every street. Lots were cast for her nobles and her great men were put in chains. You too will become drunk. You will go into hiding and seek refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees. And they will first ripe fruit and then they are shaken. And the figs will fall into the mouths of the eater. Look at your troops. They are all women. And gates of your land are wide open with enemies. Fire has consumed their bars. Draw water for the siege, strengthen your defenses, work the clay, tread the mortar, repair the brickwork. There the fire will destroy you. The sword will cut you down and like grasshoppers consume you. Multiply like grasshoppers, multiply like locusts. You have increased the number of your merchants till they are more than the stars of the sky. But like locusts, they strip the land and then fly away. Your guards are like locusts, your officials like a swarm of locusts that settle in the walls on a cold day. And when the sun appears, they fly away and no one knows where. O king of Assyria, your shepherds slumber, your nobles lie down to rest, your peoples are scattered on the mountains with no one to gather them. Nothing will heal the wound, your injury is fatal. Everyone who hears the news about you claps his hands at your fall. For who has not felt your endless cruelty? Assyria's cruelty was indeed unmatched in the ancient world. 
Their greed, their savagery is described here as piling up the corpuses. They are compared to locusts swarming over, stripping everything from all the nations around them. If you look at some of the engravings, and I've used one here on the overhead, you see time and time again they show their brutality. The engravings show people with eyes being gouged out and fingers and toes and lips and noses being cut off. John Phillips, in his commentary, writes, The initial bloodbath, when a city was sacked, was followed by fiendish cruelty. Some had their tongues torn out by its roots. Others were flayed alive, and their skins stretched out on the city walls to terrify anyone who might even entertain the idea of rebellion. Still others were impaled on sharp spikes and let to scream for days before they died. The Assyrians were a savage Savage civilization. Verse 10 tells us an especially morbid detail. The infants were dashed to pieces at the head of every street, killing little children as they took the city. Unless we recoil too far let us remind ourselves of what our nation is doing to the little infants. This kind of sinful brutality will not go unpunished, is what Nahum says. This kind of cruelty deserves punishment. And chapter 3 puts that in great relief. But I think God's judgment is so intense and heightened towards Assyria for another reason, not just because they were cruel, not just because they were sinfully cruel, and they were. But there's another reason that, that the fierce anger of the Lord is upon them. You have to remember the context. This city had been given grace, had been shown grace, hadn't it? can't say that of a lot of cities in the ancient world. This one, God sent and saved from impending judgment. Yet, they returned. They returned to their own vomit, as Proverbs 26.11 says. They presumed on the goodness of God. I hope you paid attention when we read our public scripture today. In chapter, four, uh, chapter 2, verse 4 of Romans, we read together, Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not realizing that his kindness leads to repentance? Syria simply presumed on the goodness of God. And here, in chapter 3, we see what that reaps. They presumed on the goodness of God. We do the same thing many times, don't we? These are the foxhole prayers that, by the way, we all pray at one time or another, don't we? We all pray those foxhole prayers. I mean, whatever comes up in our life, whether it be a health crisis or a financial crisis or an emotional crisis or a relationship crisis or a job crisis, We all pray those prayers. Lord, if you do this, I will. 
We have to be careful when we pray those prayers. Foxhole faith rarely lasts. That's what I have come to see. I think that's what the book of Nahum shows us. The crisis passes and thoughts of God recede into the background. A sermon I listened this week, the pastor said, the real test of a man's faith is not how sincere he may have been crying out to God in the heat of battle. The real test of his faith is rather measured by what he does when the pressure is off. Will he forget God and go back to his old ways? Or will he go deeper and develop genuine faith in the person of Christ that is not just a response to his immediate need. He finished by saying, Will he repent of his sins, trust in Christ the Savior, and follow him as Lord after the crisis is over? That is the question. That's the greatest question for the believers in chapter 3. What will you do once the crisis is over? Once God actually saves that situation. How will you act? On the micro level, when he receives, when he relieves that crisis you prayed for, but more importantly, on the macro level. The macro level here is that we deserved judgment and he sent Christ to absorb that judgment for us. And if you're sitting here and you call yourself a born-again believer, you've been given that grace. You've prayed that foxhole prayer. Now, how are you going to live your life? Because let me tell you, if, if you're a new Christian here, that initial, that initial blush of the Christian faith and the excitement will fade. How are you going to walk day by day in this life? Think of what Jesus gave you. Keep that on your mind. Punishment. He gave you forgiveness, peace, hope, acceptance, life. Think of the foxhole that he saved you from. Punishment, judgment, death, hell. Think of what Jesus sacrificed for you. His very life. Keep those things in mind. I'll leave you with a final thought. The real test of faith is measured by what you do when the pressure is off. When life is good. That shows who you are. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you will apply this word to people's hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.